I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Upzoned after kind of a prolonged break. So I apologize for that. We had, um, you know, a number of different weeks where Chuck has been traveling and all over the place. And then we were at uh, the Congress for New Urbanism. So we've had a little bit of um, of a gap in between since our last Upzone. So I apologize for that. But we are very excited to have a special guest with us today, Jay Stains, who's been on this show before. He joined Strong Towns as their new content manager at the beginning of this year. And I officially got to meet him in Oklahoma City at the Congress for the New Urbanism. So, hey, Jay, welcome back. Abby, how are you doing? You know, I, I just want to take this opportunity before I lose it to say that you did an awesome job at CNU. It was my very first CNU and you had a couple panels where you just rocked it. It was great to, to meet you there. I especially loved the open studio that you did on house hacking with uh, Bernice Radel and Monty Anderson and that group. That was an amazing one. Well, thank you so much. And it was my first CNU too. And I had so much fun at it. And it's just like amazing and inspiring to see all the creative stuff that people are working on across the country and even beyond the United States. There are people from all over the place, um, which was really, really fascinating. So it was great to meet you and, and really the rest of the Strong Towns team and a number of other people that are just doing great work, including the incremental developers, which I think are the people who are like way ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, doing things on the ground that are just so incredibly creative and agile. So yeah, we had so much fun. It was my very first ever CNU as well. And and so I really enjoyed sort of getting a, a handle on the culture of the whole thing. And, and, you know, after CNU, Josh McCarty from Urban3, who is a, a partner that a lot at Strong Towns and who I met in person for the very first time. He kind of, he did this great job, Abby, summing up CNU for people who'd never been there before. He said, imagine that you're at a comic con for people who are nerds about urban development and you kind of have a start of CNU. Uh-huh. Yep. That's a great way to describe it, I think. It was like a comic con for, for the urban development nerds. That's great. Even people right down to people with like sort of special CNU uniforms that they wore, you know, Uh I love I love the weird hats and the funny pins and the, the late night debates. And, you know, the whole thing is pretty cool. Yeah, it was it was really cool and and just, you know, great to meet so many people. And they they even had this like emerging new urbanists program at at the conference where they, you know, had a bunch of people who either it was their first CNU or they're just kind of like younger within, you know, whatever profession they're in. And so that was a really good opportunity, I think, to like just provide a space for people who aren't really as familiar or veteran as as other folks who have been going to these for a long time. So that was great too. I'm glad they did that. So we should probably get started on this article here today because you actually brought this to me and we were going to do a different one. And I was like, no, I want to talk about this. <laughs> um, so I thank you for sharing this. The title of this article is called In Montgomery County, 
Neighborhood Defenders Fight to Maintain the Suburban Status Quo. And this was published in DCS by Ali Schweitzer. The story basically depicts a scene that is so common in many communities where um, you know, you get a ton of homeowners that show up in droves to testify against a proposed development project. And in the case that is talking about here, it was from 2011, a proposal that would build 76 luxury townhomes on the site of a former private school, 10 of which would be reserved for lower income residents. The big concern from the homeowner's perspective is that adding really any housing type that is not single family to the neighborhood would disturb their tight-knit community. It would also, from their perspective, worsen traffic, pollute waterways, disturb wildlife, imperil a historic landmark, endanger children, and destroy trees. So it's kind of an interesting combination of greenwashing and think of the children um, and on a side note, the purchase price for these townhomes uh, at the time would have cost uh, $600,000. So that was back in 2011 in a neighborhood that's near the bustling downtown of Silver Spring, Maryland in Montgomery County. The townhomes were eventually developed and went on the market in 2015. Today, like so many places in the U.S. and Canada, Montgomery County is suffering from an affordability crisis and while these townhomes were not going to solve the issue of affordability alone, the dispute exemplifies how much power really a small group of residents, um, typically homeowners, can wield over the general housing development market and ecosystem of an entire community. So in this case, the delays that were associated with the neighborhood pushback, um, and this ended up being kind of like a really nasty fight it increased the cost of each housing unit by $50,000. So you can imagine over the course of multiple years and many, many different proposals and different circumstances, having this kind of broader anti-housing activism can have this chilling effect on the overall housing market. I think the one thing that I kind of want to start on because the, this article is around this idea of neighborhood defenders and they're fighting, you know, to maintain their status quo. I kind of want to get at what 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 neighborhoods are defending against. What does it mean to defend a neighborhood? Because I think that's an interesting question, and it's not one that is often asked very bluntly. This article, Abby, it really spoke to me. It was really well done, first of all. And second of all, I have been paying a lot of attention to the zoning reform debate that's underway here in Connecticut, where I live. And it, it really comes down to this same central issue in, in, in the way I see it, which is that you have a group of, of homeowners, um, a lot of people who are sort of maybe in the middle or upper middle class socioeconomic world, and they've made this very large investment in a single family home that's maybe in a, a nearby you know streetcar suburb or maybe a middle suburb in uh, in Connecticut and and maybe those investments are in the 500 to 750,000 dollar range you know a lot like the townhomes in this story and people have made these choices to buy these single family homes because it gives them entrance to some of the best public schools that are available in Connecticut. And so they have this sense that that investment is probably, and I, I have the sense also that it's probably the biggest investment they make in their lives. And it really 
touches on everything. It touches on their kids' education. It touches on their lifestyle. It touches on their transportation options. And so people ultimately may become these neighborhood defenders that we're talking about. Abby, they have so much at stake in their point of view. I mean, it's almost like you want to like tease out each of the points, right? And like really get to the bottom of each of these points of how does housing impact education? How does it impact traffic? And how do you, and basically, you know, directly try to find an approach that alleviates concerns for each of these kinds of issues. Because I don't know that it, it really makes sense to say, well, we just can't build any housing because of these fears. But but I also don't, I have like sympathy, I guess, for people or empathy to kind of people who feel afraid of kind of the unknown and, and that feeling of having so much at stake. But at the same time, like being really direct with trying to alleviate the concerns and not let that really overpower the ability to provide homes for people. And and you're right, I, I do feel like a lot of a lot of the pushback does come from kind of, you know, the the upper class neighborhoods, you know, where that, you know, people are are trying very much to kind of like defend the status quo and the way things are. What I always think is kind of interesting is those are there's Typically, in in those parts of at least Kansas City, you have a lot of the signs of in this house we believe, <laughs> um, but they'll be the first to show up to the zoning hearing to make sure that you know no renters are allowed. I actually saw there was like this sign that someone made that is like my favorite sign, and and it has all the same colors. It's you know in this neighborhood we believe. And um, I actually just pulled it up and it says density means diversity. More neighbors are more fun. ADUs are awesome. Characters make up the neighborhood character. Renters are welcome. Triplexes and fourplexes are pretty. And the city is for everyone. <laughs> and it's like my favorite sign. And I, I would love to get, have them printed. But it does seem like there needs to be like a new conversation about like, housing around, you know, people and and what the true concerns are, because, you know, I I guess maybe I have a high tolerance because I live in a place that have all of those things that I just mentioned. But, you know, it's like the world doesn't fall apart. and, And these are people living in houses, right? Exactly. What we're talking about, I think when you get right down to it is the people who are maybe these neighborhood defenders or the people that we're talking about with a lot at stake in these investments in these middle and upper middle class suburbs, they feel like anything that is even the smallest amount of change is this fundamental threat to their lifestyle and to their choices and their economic security. And in a lot of the cases, I think what we're really seeing is a pretty nuanced debate about what kinds of infill and what kinds of middle housing we really want to do. In a lot of these communities in Connecticut, there are rail options nearby, and in some cases, um, rapid transit bus systems that have been built. And so the state and, you know, certain players in Connecticut and also, you know, here in Maryland are talking about what they can do to increase density gently in the areas that are very close to transit um, infrastructure. And so I think that 
in some of the cases we're talking, for example, in Connecticut, there was a bill that had been proposed, Abby, where they were looking at trying to make 15 units per acre within a mile of transit allowed as of right. So there wouldn't be like a big public hearing and a big fight about it. And that bill was recently tabled. It never even made it out to the committee for a vote. And, you know, here in Connecticut, you have this kind of progressive sort of blue liberal, a lot of Democrats who who live here, but they live on, you know, big lots on, you know, with single family homes that are pretty expensive. And there's a lot of fear, some and maybe in some cases, unjustified fear about changes that might be as subtle as going to, you know, three and four unit places that are sort of in the town centers and located near transit, people are really worried about how that might change the character of their neighborhood. And I think that depends on who you're talking to, what they act exactly mean by that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. And this article, I think, really depicts kind of like the worst, you know, and, and, you know, most challenging kind of conversation or, or route that these things can go. But, you know, for anyone who wants to look it up, it's called the Chelsea Heights Development in Silver Springs, Maryland. And in this case, you know, I, I would say that it aligns with kind of the the approach that Strong Towns talks a lot about, the idea of every neighborhood enabling the next increment of development, but no more than that, right? So we're not talking about like landing a giant, you know, big block apartment building in the middle of a neighborhood. It's it's about, you know, the next increment, gentle, missing middle, you know, integrated into these these places. And if you actually look up the the outcome of the development, th- these townhomes are gorgeous. They're beautiful. And and they're also, you know, they're not cheap. So, you know, some of these arguments about, you know, property values or school district kind of issues around that, I think it's harder to make those kinds of claims when you're dealing with construction costs that are very expensive, high design. I mean, these are these are some really, really nicely designed townhomes. And, and maybe the maybe the process with the community was part of of improving the design and, you know, making them costlier as well. But I just think it the strong towns approach, you know, I think is a really good kind of middle ground that upsets both the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs, right? <laughs> because it's it's about, you know, enabling the next increment, but no more than that for communities. I think it kind of begs this question of like, who who really should have the say on what types of homes get built? And h- how do you direct these kinds of conversations in a way that is healthier and um, enables better outcomes for housing? Because I think a lot of us in this space, you know, are concerned about, about, you know, the ability for people to, to get housing. Right. And, and, and so some of these, a a lot of the concerns that people have just seem, I guess, less important than the ability for, for people to not live on the streets. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Daniel Harrigus at Strong Towns, one of our senior editors, had a, had a piece, Abby, this year that we published. And his, his point was that the duplex that sits next door to your single family home is something that doesn't impact uh, your neighborhood 
in a huge way. I mean, maybe there is an extra car that's parked on the street. Maybe there is a, uh, you know, an extra person coming and going, but an actual duplex that's sort of mixed into a single family home neighborhood, it really doesn't feel like uh, an imposing change. But when you contrast that to a process where a zoning change might be requested so that a duplex could come into a single family home neighborhood, the fear or the unknown that people who own the single family homes experience about what that might be can be sometimes really out of scale with what it what it really ultimately ends up being. And I know at sometimes we say that radical change in a neighborhood is, you know, definitely not something anybody wants. But we also believe really strongly that change when it comes to gentle density upzonings, change has to be greater than zero. It can't be nothing. It has to be greater than zero, even if it's if it's small and as you really nicely said, you know, infill and and gentle, gentle, you know, upzonings from one to two and two to three family units. That makes a lot of sense. But for some reason, the the fear is really out of scale with what really ends up happening. I mean, I think a lot of the times the developers and some of them are mentioned here in this article in Maryland, a lot of times the the developers end up in these protracted legal fights about getting their projects approved. And the local planning and zoning commission is normally the entity that they're up against. And what will happen is that you'll have these attorneys come in. And I think there's a couple that are referenced in our, our article today. These attorneys come in and sow this sort of fear and of like saying, hey, we're, these folks, you know, they open the door to upzonings. And the next thing you know, you're going to have 500 unit 10-story tall multifamily apartments in the community, which are the things that your parents ran away from in urban centers 40 years ago. And, you know, that that sort of fear-mongering, I think, that comes from, from that group is really completely out of scale with what I think we're talking about and what we're advocating for. Yeah, that's a really good point. And putting it into that kind of psychological context is is I think really important because we do kind of like learn things from our parents and they're, it's like we all have these different experiences based on what generation we were brought up in. And I'm sure my perspective is influenced by that as well. I think that is an incredibly good point. And these discussions I think will continue to be muddy, but you know, I think what Strong Towns is doing is very important in trying to trying to kind of bring these conversations along in a way that that tries to build consensus based on different people's perspectives. And, you know, Daniel, I, I so admire him because I think he is one of the smartest people on the housing issue and his writing is just incredible. So I'll have to, I'll have to go find that article you were mentioning. He's been done a lot of work over the years on on zoning reform, and I think that one of the things I'm learning, Abby, is that a lot of times when state level policy change is implemented, you know, whether it's you know in Connecticut or whether it's in California or Oregon, where some of the state legislatures have said, "Hey, we really have a housing problem. The housing is too expensive. There's not enough of it. We need up zonings." all over the place now. And what will happen is that these statewide policies will be implemented, 
But then the local communities, the local town councils, the local planning and zoning commissions will, and it happened in Connecticut too, they'll say, you know, we don't want state legislators telling us how to manage our town. We don't want uh, a big one-size-fits-all policy to come in and dictate how we should or shouldn't um, make decisions about about our, our, our zoning and our density in our town. And I think that a lot of times those problems, they're a little bit too, it's a little bit too strident. You know, it's too polarized. And I, I think that what, we're, what I'm learning is that the costs of construction and the nuances of mild and sort of slow moving up zonings are really underestimated or maybe lost in that really polarized discussion. Yeah. And I, I wish we had more time to dig in. And I know you have a hard stop. So we'll leave it there. I look forward to talking more about this discussion with you. I think housing is so interesting. And it's interesting to just learn about how these conversations are playing out in different parts of the U.S. and, and you know, maybe even in other countries. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be kind of interesting to talk about. But before we conclude, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been up to these days, reading, watching, anything. So, Jay, what, what have you been up to? I, you know, I'm going to come right back at you, Abby, and at CNU and at, <laughs> and at Mr. Kevin Klinkenberg with my downzoning, I, one of the things that, uh, that I encountered or sort of like refound after I got back home was Rob Stoideville from CNU public square did a piece about Kevin Klinkenberg and his partner's housing hacking manual. We were going to publish it this week in strong towns. It was on the CNU public square site and it's this great, great article, um, and, and manual, if you will, or, you know, kind of a, a guidebook for, how to make a house more valuable. You know, I think you know Kevin's story really well. You know, had a, he, he had what, what he called the sort of lost and begotten Charlie Brown of Christmas trees triplex, right? And he ended up like slowly, um, you know, rebuilding it and was able to, to, to come into a, a neighborhood at a price point that maybe he couldn't afford in his young, in his young days. But it ended up like really being an important supplement to his income and to his growth as a developer and as an architect. And I, I and so anyway, I would point people to that article that is in CNU Public Square, and we're also going to republish it in Strong Towns. It's a it's a great article about a great like really easy to use manual. Like you know, you start as like maybe a homeowner who you know adds an ADU in your home but then you know you kind of gather some skills and pretty pretty soon the next thing you know you're a Bernice Radel who's an incremental developer doing amazing things to provide like cool housing opportunities for people where we didn't think they existed before Yes, I am aware of this manual and, and it is amazing. I would encourage anybody to go to Strong Towns and find that. I mean that is it's it's an incredible manual. I love it. Um, and yeah, Bernice, <laughs> Bernice is an inspiration. Her work is, is just incredible. So I actually was going to share that just over the weekend, I was revisiting this documentary that I have to watch every single year to remind myself of how simple kind of 
urban design can be. It's a documentary from 1979 called The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces by William H. White. It's basically, it was a research project that was spearheaded in New York that was intended to like explore um, statistics around what makes public spaces successful versus unsuccessful. And so it, it really brings out like these really simple principles around what makes a public space work. And it's just narrated in a really funny and very 1970s kind of way. So if you haven't seen that, I can share a coffee with you, Jay. I, I hope you've had a chance to see it, but it's just one of those documentaries that is like fundamental, I think. I, Abby, I don't know that one. Please do share it. And you know, one of, the th- one of the things I've learned really securely about listen, being an upzone listener and an occasional participant is that Abby Kinney has amazing uh, resources in movie recommendations. You are very, <laughs> you are a very fluent cinemaphile or whatever you call that. That's so funny that you say that because I would not think of myself that way. But before I um, wanted to do planning. I actually started with wanting to do architecture. And then when I decided not to do that, you know, had a little bit of a, you know, quarter life crisis and I was going to do videography (laughs) and ended up doing planning instead. But yeah, I was, I was interested in going to film school. Yeah, you've had you've had some great film recommendations over the weeks. I've, I've I've listened in with interest. So thanks thanks for those too, Abby, as well as your uh, as well as your great and information and advice about architecture and urban planning. I love I love a good movie, and so I'm, I'm always open for recommendations. So, well, I will I'll leave it there. Thanks for joining me, Jay. Appreciate it, and great to meet you before. Yeah, great to be here with you, Abby. Thanks so much. Have a good day. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, everybody. Let me show you what I'm about to do.